Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the history of FDR's four freedoms and economic bill of rights that laid the groundwork for the fight for economic freedom for all that continues to this day. Clips today come from Book TV, the Tom Hartman program, Moyers and Company, the Majority Report, and a progressive faith sermon from my friend and yours, Dr. Roger Ray. I wrote The Fight for the Four Freedoms not only as a historian, I also wrote it as an historical advocate. Uh, There are those who think we make too much of the greatest generation and its greatest leader. I, I think we make too little of them. In short, to give you a sense of what this will be about, I think we are failing to remember what made FDR and the greatest generation truly great. And in failing to remember that, we are not just failing them, We are failing ourselves, and it's that argument, that story, that challenge, which I now offer to you. We need to remember. We need to remember what conservatives have never wanted us to remember and what liberals have all too often forgotten. We need to remember what we've been trying so hard to remember. Now, especially after more than 30 years, of subordinating the public good to corporate priorities and private greed, of subjecting ourselves to widening inequalities and intensifying insecurities, of allowing our rights to be threatened, and of denying our own democratic impulses and yearnings. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who rescued the United States from economic destruction in the Great Depression, and defended it against fascism and imperialism in the Second World War. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who not only saved the nation from economic ruin and political oblivion, but also turned it into the strongest and most prosperous country on earth. And most of all, we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who accomplished all of that in the face of fierce, conservative, reactionary, and corporate opposition and despite their own faults and failings, by harnessing the powers of democratic government and making America freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. Now, when all that they fought for is under siege, and we too find ourselves confronting crises and forces that threaten the nation and all that it stands for, we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the most progressive generation in American history. We are the children of the men and women who articulated, fought for, and endowed us with the promise of the four freedoms. On the afternoon of January 6, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt went up to Capitol Hill to deliver his annual message to Congress. Just weeks earlier, he had defeated Republican Wendell Wilkie at the polls and won re-election to an unprecedented third term. But he now faced a bigger challenge one even more daunting than those he confronted in his first and second terms. Still stalked by the Great Depression, the United States was also increasingly threatened by the Axis powers, Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, imperial Japan. And with war already raging east and west, Americans had yet to agree about how to respond to that threat. The president, however, did not falter. He not only proceeded to propose measures to address the emergency, he also gave dramatic new meaning, and I love reciting these words in this building, 
He gave dramatic new meaning to all men are created equal. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We, the people of the United States, a new birth of freedom and government of the people, by the people, for the people. Roosevelt knew about crises, but he knew as well what Americans could accomplish, even in the darkest of times. Born in 1882, he had grown up privileged, the son of Hudson River Gentry. Yet long before becoming president, he had suffered serious defeats and setbacks, none more devastating than contracting polio in 1921 at the age of 39. The disease had left him permanently unable to stand up or walk without assistance. However, supported by his wife Eleanor and other family members and friends, he had risen above the paralysis to become the most dynamic political figure in the United States. Moreover, his experiences in the course of doing so had reaffirmed and deepened his already powerful faith and confidence in God, in himself, and in his fellow citizens. All of which, all of which had enabled him, in the face of the worst economic and social catastrophe in the nation's history, to say, there is no question in my mind that it is time for the country to become fairly radical for a generation. To declare the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. To insist that democracy is not a static thing, it is an everlasting march. And to proudly proclaim this generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. Propelled by the popular energies that his words and actions elicited, he determinedly launched the initiatives of relief, recovery, reconstruction, and reform known as the New Deal. Together, president and people severely tested each other, made real mistakes, regrettable compromises, and suffered serious defeats and sore disappointments. Nevertheless, challenging and pushing each other to live up to their finest ideals and aspirations, FDR and his fellow citizens advanced them further than either had expected or even imagined possible. Even as they confronted and dealt with harsh and concerted attacks from their powerful, conservative, and corporate antagonists, they not only rejected the sirens of authoritarianism, they also redeemed the nation's historic purpose and promise by initiating revolutionary changes in government and public life and radically extending American freedom, equality, and democracy. By way of a great host of alphabet soup, agencies and associations, from the SEC, CCC, and WPA to the CIO, AYC, and NAACP, they subjected big business and banking to public account and regulation. They empowered the federal government to address the needs of working people and the poor and established a social security system. They organized labor unions, consumer campaigns, and civil rights organizations. They fought for their rights and they broadened the we in we the people. They built schools, libraries, parks, and playgrounds. They expanded the nation's public infrastructure. They improved the American environment. They cultivated the arts and refashioned popular culture. And though there was still much to be done, they imbued themselves with fresh democratic convictions, hopes, and aspirations. Standing before the American people and their assembled representatives that early January day in 1941, Roosevelt surely believed their rendezvous with destiny had come. Speaking without hesitation, he proceeded to expound upon the profound crisis and mortal dangers facing the United States and to explain how the nation could not just confront them but actually prevail in doing so. 
rejecting isolationist arguments that America should simply hunker down behind great defensive walls, he rallied his fellow citizens around a dynamic image of America serving as the great arsenal of democracy. And dismissing conservatives' claims that the crisis required them, sorry, that the crisis required Americans to give up their hard-fought-for advances, Roosevelt argued that an effective mobilization required them to not simply sustain their democratic achievements, but also extend and deepen them again. Finally, articulating America's grandest ideals and strivings anew, the president defined a cause and a generation. In the future days which we seek to make secure, he said, we look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. The first is freedom of speech and expression. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way. The third is freedom from want. The fourth is freedom from fear. Isolationists denounced the president's call to turn the U.S. into the arsenal of democracy, and conservatives rejected his expansive democratic vision. But most Americans responded otherwise. While they may not have been able to recite those freedoms exactly, they backed the call to action, affirmed the promise pronounced, and in the wake of Japan's December 7, 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor, they made freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear, the nation's war aims. Ted Cruz last night talked about freedom at some length and uh, how freedom is going to bring our jobs back. Freedom is this magical thing, just like the free market. It's a piece of freedom. And here he is. And if we stand together and choose freedom, our future will be brighter. Freedom will bring back jobs and raise wages. Freedom will lift people out of dependency to the dignity of work. Right. Freedom will lift people out of dependency. In other words, when he says freedom, what he is saying to lift people out of dependency is do away with all programs that are involve the government taking tax money and giving it to people or doing things for people. Right. You want to lift people out of dependency? Hey. We don't need no stinking social security. We should privatize it and, you know, sell it off to the banksters. We don't need no stinking Medicaid and Medicare. Let people, let people work for a living and earn their health insurance. That's, you know, I mean, this is, this is the, this, this concept that has been peddled to us since the sixties, really a little before that, but it really started taking hold in the, in the early seventies, actually. Uh, when Lewis Powell wrote his memo and all these think tanks emerged in the mid 70s uh, that led right to the Buckley decision in 1976 that Lewis Powell wrote from the, for the Supreme Court. And it, this, this idea that somehow freedom means freedom from, quote, government interference. And yet, without, quote, government interference, there would be no freedom. There would be no free market. There would be no marketplace, for example. If the government didn't manage our money supply, there'd be no marketplace. If the government didn't provide rules for business, what is fraud, what is not fraud, for example? Here's a court in which the, the rules against fraud can be enforced. Here's a rule in which contracts can be enforced. Or here's a court, excuse me, where contracts can be enforced. Here's a jail for people who don't want, you know, who don't play by the rules. 
I mean, it's somehow this this Ayn Rand juvenile kind of high school fantasy that freedom means. Well, in the case of the Ayn Rand novel, uh, Atlas Shrugged, it was the daughter and son of a rich guy who inherited the railroad from their daddy and were very upset with the fact that uh, the union, the railroads union workers uh, were concerned about their safety. How, <laughs> how dare they? They're just those little people, right? So here you have, you know, a Republican Party platform that is calling for freedom in all its in all its forms, right? If freedom from Social Security, freedom from Medicare, freedom from health, uh, health, uh, any any sort of health care, freedom from uh, workplace safety rules, freedom from uh, rules that would keep our air clean. Freedom from rules that would keep our water clean so the companies can feel free to pollute all they want. Hey, you know, a few people die of cancer. What does it matter? No big deal. Freedom from the need to, to, uh, to fund our public education system. I mean, literally, the, the Republican platform says, let's end our public schools. Rich people can afford to send their kids to school. What's the problem? It's freedom, you know? And it's like, let me share a somewhat different version of freedom, vision of freedom for you. Franklin Roosevelt famously said, quoting, he said, I'm quoting, this was from his, uh, I think, 1932, can, or maybe it was his 36 speech, but, uh, you know, accepting the, the nomination. And he said, an old English judge once said, a necessitous man is not a free man. And then he went on to talk about how if you are hungry, you're not free. If you are sick and can't get health care, you're not free. If you are homeless and cannot find a place to live, you're not free. If you are out of work and can't find a job because capitalism has failed and because the government will not be the employer of last resort, you are not free. If, if you're... If you're the victim of predation by big corporations or billionaires, you're not free. If you live in constant fear that the, the billionaires are going to take you out, you're not free. So we have here, like, basically two very different visions of freedom. You have the, the, the vision of freedom that has been held Literally since the founding of our republic, the whole purpose of the Constitution was to create a government that could establish rules for commerce. That's very specifically in there in the Commerce Clause. And, and, and rules for, you know, how, how society is basically functioning in a smooth and efficient way that protects us from government overreach, but at the same time protects us from corporate or billionaire overreach. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt said, you know, uh, rule by organized money is as dangerous as rule by organized mob. And it's true. I mean, you know, the, the, the libertarians would refer to democracy as mob rule. That's that's the whole, you know, they're not they would uh, an honest libertarian will come right out and tell you they don't believe in democracy. As has happened many times on this program. 
the little people, you know, they, you know, if they're not paying taxes, if they don't own property, if they're, if they're not, you know, and the subtext of that, of course, is if they're not wealthy and white, then they should have no say in how the government is run. That's their vision. That's the libertarian vision. And the Republican vision is very, very close to them. I'm not an expert in, on American history, but I know enough to recognize that George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, James Madison, Ben Franklin, all had glaring blind spots, moral failings. But given the European soup of monarchy and class-tiered society that they emerged from, the experiment in democracy that they tried to launch was, and, and I'll defend this against all comers, it really was a moral triumph. But you don't go from a moral nightmare to perfection in one giant leap. You don't do it in a single generation, and apparently you don't do it in a century. Ensuring the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, of association, protections against unwarranted search and seizure, ex post facto laws, all that was huge. But by the time the world had fallen into the Second World War, it was evident that our 18th century Bill of Rights would never suffice to create the more perfect union that our founders envisioned. So in the midst of that global conflict, President Roosevelt envisioned coming out of that great war with the moral resolve to finish the job by creating a kind of economic independence that would actually make Americans free. Roosevelt proposed a second Bill of Rights with eight points, and even though he proposed them more than four generations ago, really none of them have been entirely implemented. The last one about Social Security and Medicare certainly has been a huge gift, but we're still having to fight for all eight. The first of his points was the right to a useful and remunerative job in the industries or shops or farms or mines of the nation. That is to say, no one who wants to work should be unemployed. The New Deal exemplified a primitive model of this by creating public works jobs, and, and the result of, of that uh, was not just some of the bridges and parks that we still enjoy here in Springfield today, but also certain art uh, was created at that time. It is possible to employ everyone. Everyone who is willing and able to work should be able to have a paying job. No exceptions, because exceptions to that actually generates poverty. His second suggested amendment said that all Americans have a right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation. Roosevelt was obviously advocating for full employment at a living wage, but there is that one more word here that I don't want for us to miss, and that is recreation. That's why I asked Sean to add the song, bread and roses in the early women's uh, union movement, they weren't just asking for enough pay to be able to have bread on their table. 
But shouldn't they also be able to have roses now and then? Anyone who works, human beings don't exist simply to work. Uh, There's more. It it always worries me when I hear of GE or some plant giving someone a perfect attendance award for 40 years. In 40 years, you never came up with anything better to do than make refrigerators. You, you, you couldn't call in sick now and then. We, we are not cattle to be milked for our labor and then turned into leather coats and shoes and hamburgers. Compensation for labor should be enough to provide for some quality of life, not mere existence, but also happiness, some leisure and recreation. A hundred years ago, women marched for bread and roses because they wanted to be both free and happy. The failure to take note of Roosevelt's Third and Fourth Amendments has resulted in a lethal transfer of wealth from the whole of the nation into the hands of the few. He mentioned the right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return which will give his family a decent living. The right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad. We were saying in class this morning, they still tell the story about the Boston Tea Party being about a tax on tea. That had nothing to do with it at all. It had everything to do with this giant British corporation that was bringing tea to the country that was cheaper than the tea that American business owners were able to sell in their tea shops. And so it was the businessmen that got everyone together to uh, go out and, and throw the cheap tea into the harbor. If we are really a free nation, then can we continue to allow the 1% to claim 80% of the earth and all of its resources for themselves and force the 99% to fight over the scraps? This unbounded economic system that can't seem to come up with a livable floor of income surely has to invent some kind of sane ceiling that makes the distribution of the world's wealth much more fair than anything we're ever going to get by just waiting for the largesse of the Walton or Bezos families or even the relatively generous Gates and, and Warren Buffett families. Somewhere between the very rich or even the obscenely rich and master of the universe, there has to be a sane place where we can say enough is enough already. There are more than enough resources in the world to satisfy the needs of the poor. But folks, there will never be enough to, to satisfy the greed of the rich. The society as a whole has a right, nay, has an obligation to set sane boundaries to capitalism. Why was the four freedom speech so important? I think the four freedom speech is important in the most immediate sense of 1941, and that's really the call to war. Americans know what's coming. The call to war is, we need to create an arsenal for democracy. We need to create a Lend-Lease program to secure Britain and its, and its allies against Nazi Germany. And then he says, but don't, don't misunderstand. 
we have to appreciate that if we're going to prepare ourselves for defense, that we don't give up what we've achieved these last eight years. And he lays out new initiatives. What he knew and what he knew a generation knew was the only way to defend, secure, and sustain American democracy is you constantly press to enhance it. You test the limits. We're the great experiment in democracy, and he knew that. He knew American history. So here he appears, and how does he close this speech? The four freedoms. And he actually says that these four freedoms are at the heart of American life. They're at the heart of this ongoing, perpetual, and peaceful revolution dating back to the time of the revolution. I didn't realize until I read your book what the importance of the victory medal that every uh, soldier, sailor, right. marine, airman, uh, all airman right. received in World War II. And tell me about that. Well, this was a medal awarded at the end of the war to everyone who served in uniform. And this was a medal that on the front looks just like any other war medal. And when you flip it to the back side, it says... Freedom from fear, freedom from want, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Yes. And it isn't that this was issued as a propaganda device. The war is over. This was issued because the Roosevelt administration knew that this is what Americans were fighting for. It was, in, it was in any number of venues that you could see the evidence. Letters to newspapers by the wives who stayed home and went to work in the war factories and the men who went off to service. Americans couldn't always recite those four freedoms, but they knew exactly what they were fighting for. I, I had to shake my head when I came to that moment in your book when you say that when Roosevelt delivering the speech got to freedom, <laughs> freedom from war, no Republicans applauded, and At least some Democrats right. didn't right. applaud. Right. I think that shook up the Republicans. Samuel Grafton, the, New York, the then liberal New York Post columnist, said they sat in their hands. And then he got to freedom from fear, and that was when he said it, and I think the Demo a good number of Democrats, and you know who those were. They were the white supremacist Democrats. In yes, the South. because he was talking about freedom from persecution and right. discrimination. Right, exactly. And exactly. that's when the, the yeah. Dixiecrats would have sat on their hands, yes. Democrats. Right. You know what's interesting, Bill, is if you read the exact wording of the speech and his idea of the four freedoms, Roosevelt states them in a way that might not have been so scary to the well-off. But Americans knew they were talking to he, that he was talking to them. And when they said, when they heard, Freedom from want and freedom from fear. They had absolutely no doubt what he had in mind. I remember you're quoting something that FDR said to a friend of his, I think in 1930. 1930. What right. was it? He said to a friend, looking all around him with the devastation of the Great Depression, I think it's time that we make America fairly radical for a generation. Fairly radical? Fairly radical. Fairly radical. Reminded me of Walt Whitman, be radical, be radical, be not too damn radical. What do you think he meant by that? I think he meant that it was time to free ourselves of the conservative shackles of the 1920s. That it was time to enable working people to organize. It was time to provide old age pensions. I'm actually reading in my head from his campaign speeches. We needed to create public works projects. We needed to address the environment, soil erosion, heat. Agriculture was fundamental to Franklin Roosevelt. Over and over again, out on the campaign trail that year, contrary to what historians seem to, to say, Roosevelt was saying, we need to do these things. That's what he meant by radical. But he didn't mean merely that he would do it 
or the Democrats in Congress would do it. As we saw in the coming years, he meant we will make America fairly radical for a generation. I have a theory, and here's my theory. I believe that, I say that Reagan could never have become president if we, if Democrats, progressives, and liberals had not already forgotten and forsaken the four freedoms. The only thing that enables conservatives to appeal to the vast majority of American working people is when that vast majority is disappointed and frustrated and angry. You're right. We have been led to forget. And who has led us to forget? So over and over again, we saw from right through the 30s, right through World War II, we saw corporate interests constantly trying to either directly suppress the, the ideas that are going to become the four freedoms, okay, by saying private enterprise, that's what makes America great, uh, forgetting the struggle for freedom's speech, expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want and freedom from fear that Roosevelt put into words. For example, Ronald Reagan. If you look closely at what Reagan does in the course of his presidency, he appears on uh, July 3rd, 1987 at the Jefferson Memorial at an event sponsored by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And he says that he wants to advance four freedoms. He says, you know, we Americans need to cultivate, we need to remember, he says we need to remember. And we need to teach our children history and make sure they remember. America is about freedom. And what does he say? Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom of enterprise. He literally expunges freedom from want and freedom from fear. So is this, have you written this as an agenda for the Democratic Party? I'm, I don't know if the Democratic Party will attend to it. I want all of my fellow citizens to attend to this argument because I think Americans would respond if they heard it. Over and over again, what they hear from leaders is, yes, we can, and then at the moment of now, what are we going to do? They get left behind in favor of Washington, D.C. politics. Washington, D.C. politics. Talk to me as a conservative who has real doubts about the efficacy of government, who really believes that there is a, a threat right. from unlimited government, and who thinks the New Deal didn't work the way you think it did. Two things. First of all, let's imagine we're both conservatives, wealthy conservatives. And you know what I would say? I'd say, we don't really hate government. It's working perfectly for us. Why should we hate government? Out in public, why do they have this animosity towards government? Because what this generation did, what this generation did is they harnessed the powers of democratic government to make America freer, more equal, and more democratic. They harnessed the powers of democratic government. You know, they knew how to go about doing it because Roosevelt invited them to do so. And he brought to Washington these new dealers and sent them out around the country. I mean, he opened up Washington to Catholics, Jews, African-Americans, women. He made Washington connect with Americans, not simply to have a better political funnel sending out the messages, but to get those people out in the field going. He would call his, his friend, Felix Frankfurter, up at Harvard University. He'd say, I need some new dealers, send them down. And all these young Catholic and Jewish lawyers would come in to see Frankfurter and say, I want to be a new dealer. And it had been a wasp country. Up, up until absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. 
And what was funny was these young Catholic and Jewish lawyers, Frankfurter would say to them, go to Wall Street for two years. Learn about them so you can control them. It was great, right? And they became known as the hot dogs. <laughs> Did you write this book to make people fight mad? Because they're going to be fighting mad on either side of the political spectrum when they read it. Yes, absolutely. I want them to be fighting mad. I want them to be fighting mad like Roosevelt was. I want them to say, we need to make America fairly radical for a generation. What we need to do is we need to go back and remember the kinds of things that Roosevelt knew, that there's deep in every American this desire to redeem the meaning of America. And he knew that there are ways of getting people to act because if you can speak to them as an American, remind them of who they are, invite them to, to offer their labors, invite them to organize. In the 1930s, I mean, organizers went out and said, you've got to organize. The president wants you in a union. It worked. Millions joined. And by the way, living standards rose, worker security improved, we get social security. I mean, look what we've done and look what we're allowing to happen now. This cannot be the America that I imagined and most of my fellow Americans imagine. But they have forgotten, not the four freedoms as ideals, they have forgotten what it takes to realize them, that we must defend, sustain, and secure democracy by enhancing it. That's what Roosevelt knew. That's what Jefferson knew. And no one seems to remember that today. That's what we have to remind people of. to quickly uh, let you know I found a good argument when I was uh, arguing with libertarians that it might uh, help you on your show. Okay, let's hear it. Um, it, it goes like this. You know, libertarians are definitely for freedom. Um, I think the main point of contention for me, anyway, is that when you have very little money, you have freedom in name only because you're switching costs. Like, let's say you have a yes. job and the family to support. Absolutely. You're switching costs. Switching careers are very high. You can't afford it. And so basically, your freedom, the way to get people to be free is to give them at least some basic income, some kind of guaranteed income, so that they are actually free to go and educate themselves and choose their job. I have made this argument with libertarians many times in the past. Their definition of freedom, for some reason, does not include the freedom to pursue um, a, a career that you want to um, uh, pursue. Uh, you may be inhibited. Your freedom is inhibited by student loans. Uh, your freedom to get uh, an education is uh, a function sometimes of money. Your freedom uh, of um, to pursue the work you want is a, sometimes a function you can't get health insurance. Um, and they don't accept that level of freedom. They have no problem with um, economic coercion uh, by more powerful uh, economic factors. They have no problem with a lack of freedom uh, that comes from, uh, from, uh, uh, requirements of basic subsistence living. That's not an issue. That's not the freedom they're talking about. 
So how do they uh, explain? How do they think it's a free market if many of the participants are not really free to choose what they want to do? You're always free to choose. You can choose to starve if you want. You can choose to die <laughs> as opposed to working if you want, because uh, you can't. Ha- uh, that's always a choice. The Dying only thing on they the recognize table, right? is as coercive for some reason, is if you're put into a physical cell. That's the only uh, coercion that they believe exists. There is no other form of coercion, according to libertarians. Only the state, in its capacity to put you in jail, that's the only form of coercion that can exist in their worldview, because many of them have not had to feel the uh, impact of having a family and desperately needing health insurance for them or um or, or, or they're old enough where they realize hey i need health insurance for me to survive uh they don't recognize coercion in any form other than the capacity to be put in jail by the federal government more often than not that's just their bellywick <clears throat> i don't know what to tell you greg Now, Roosevelt's fifth tenet is the right of every family to a decent home. Now, our little church building was first constructed here in the middle of a lower middle class neighborhood with very modest homes all around us. But in the past decade that we've owned this building, the area just outside of town has become populated with gated communities protecting private homes that look to me to be the size of small hotels. And, and have evidently nearly as many rooms and bathrooms as a small hotel. And most of them, when I talk to people that know who live in these neighborhoods, there's not more than two people living in each one of those houses. I'm not sure what they're compensating for if two people need a three-story home with eight bedrooms and eight bathrooms. On the one hand, you might say that such competition in... Uh, a, a social edifice complex is none of our business. But is it none of our business when there are nearly a thousand people in this city living under bridges and, and in drainage culverts and sewer catch basins? Can a just society let Fred and Susie sleep with their little Sarah and Billy in a car on Commercial Street while Brett and Brittany have a, an 8,000-square-foot home in Springfield and a 3,000-square-foot cabin on the lake and a four-bedroom ski lodge in Aspen? At some point, you have to see there's a connection between Brett and Brittany having too many houses and Fred and Susie not having a house. This is not complicated. Excess at one end of the scale creates deficits at the other end of the scale. The very wealthy will always have nicer digs than the poor. As Paul said, I've been rich and I've been poor. What Paul didn't say is rich is better. (laughs) The rich will always have a nicer place to live. But can't we also say that there has to be a rational floor beneath which no one should fall? Shouldn't everyone have a safe and decent shelter in which they can cook and sleep and bathe? I wouldn't care if Brett had an elevator for his cars in his garage if I didn't see Fred being turned away at cross lines because did you know we can't give groceries to someone that doesn't have a refrigerator and a stove? 
Did you know that? You can be so poor that even a poverty program is not allowed to help you. Did you know that there are people with such little income that even Habitat for Humanity cannot give them a house? I'm just making the modest proposal that Brett can have his 18-seat home theater when Fred gets a refrigerator and a flushing toilet. That's not too much to ask. day, certain economic truths have become accepted as self-evident. A second Bill of Rights, under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station or race or creed. Among these are the right to a useful and remunerative job. I've introduced a trillion-dollar piece of legislation that would go a long way to rebuild our crumbling roads, bridges, airports, water systems, and by the way, support the creation of 13 million decent-paying jobs. The right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation. The $7.25 minimum wage is a starvation wage. We need to raise it over a period of years to $15 an hour. Nobody working 40 hours a week in this country should live in poverty. The right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom, freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad. The six largest financial institutions have assets of almost 60% of our GDP. It's time to break up the large Wall Street banks. We need to fundamentally transform our trade policies. They are not working. Corporate America is going to have to start investing in the United States, not in China. The right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. The United States remains the only major country on earth without a national health care program, and yet we spend almost twice as much per capita. It is time for America to guarantee health care to every man, woman, and children as a right of citizenship. The right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accidents, and unemployment. Some of my colleagues in Congress are working day and night to try to cut Social Security, cut Medicare, cut Medicaid. Needless to say, I strongly disagree. The right to a good education. Millions of our young people are graduating school deeply in debt, and many others cannot afford to go to college. Anyone who has the ability and desire should be able to get a college education, regardless of the income of their family. All of these rights spell security. We must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. We are at a crucial moment in American history, and it is imperative that we organize, that we educate, that we bring people together to create an America that works for all of us. For unless there is security here at home, there cannot be lasting peace in the world.
when we talk about the uh, the success, I should say, of the pushback by uh, corporate powers, by the the free marketeers, right. we usually date that starting in the early 70s. But it was happening through the 40s, obviously, the 50s, yes. uh, from the moment that the New Deal was was passed. Uh, the Republican uh, platform was was calling it socialism, uh, communism right. and, and saying it was problematic. Yeah. So they uh, in some respects, um, I mean, Reagan, I want to jump ahead a little bit because we're 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 yeah, heading I towards understand. the time. But um, yeah, Reagan, of course, was a member of that greatest generation. And he had been he had been an avid supporter of Roosevelt and an avid supporter of Truman. But in the course of the 1950s, he moved to the right, and he became, of course, a spokesperson, a leading spokesperson of the right, and 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 for big business against the legacy of the New Deal, attacking Social Security, attacking um, the tele- Tennessee Valley Authority, you know, the big uh, projects down south. I mean, he, narrating he was, anti-union uh, 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 films, I guess, at the time. Right, for, even as he himself headed up the Screen Actors Guild. Yeah. I mean, I mean, talking about the czar, right? So when he, when he, to jump well ahead, when he wins the presidency, sorry, when he runs for the presidency in the 1970s, he is himself trying to temper his language because he knows Americans will not vote against someone who is attacking Roosevelt. So basically, he, he redirects his attack a bit towards the great society of Lyndon Johnson. And then, however, when he's in office, it's fascinating, he tries to turn the, the, the language, the rhetoric, the vision of Roosevelt upside down. So he wants to create, he says in 1987, he gives a speech at uh, the Jefferson Memorial on Jer- July 3rd, 1987, uh, sponsored by the, K- by the Chamber of Commerce, not surprisingly, where he's going to create an economic bill of rights. And in this economic bill of rights, instead of guaranteeing Americans their rights and guaranteeing Americans their needs, and gar- but look, I mean, Roosevelt said, necessitous men are not free men. What Reagan does is he turns it upside down, and he talks about guarantee, you know, that guaranteeing profits, lowering taxes, I mean, it's, a, it's a literally turning Roosevelt's idea of the Four Freedoms and Economic Bill of Rights inside out. Um, I mean, that's the kind of thing that takes place. And by the way, even today, conservatives directly attack FDR's Four Freedoms. Um, Jim DeMint, who was the U.S. Senator from South Carolina and now the head of the Heritage Foundation, right. he has written books in which he makes it a point of attacking freedom from one head-on. Uh, Ron Paul... Right, the father of Rand Paul, who was for many years in Congress, he actually has a chapter in one of his recent books which denigrates and you know and basically, excuse my language, craps all over the idea of the four freedoms. I mean, conservatives to this day have in their heads that they're going to undo the New Deal, and you and I both know that this this is a class war from above that's been going on for forty years. I mean, really, uh, let's. I mean, in terms of the the, the New Deal, that uh, it's been going on for for eighty now, I guess. Um, and, yes. and and I mean, it's interesting too because um, the w- the pushback started relatively uh, early when the um, I think it was the Chamber of Commerce came up with a fifth freedom, right? Which was right, that's I, private event, private enterprise, right? Yes, I mean, that's this right. is fascinating to me when you know the idea that Reagan would uh, attempt i mean because i mean this is a little bit far afield but the idea that reagan would attempt to address the the idea of uh those four freedoms and the economic bill of rights 
that you know, but supplant them with uh, was freedom to work, freedom to enjoy the fruits of one's labor. In other words, freedom to spend a lot of money, right? right? right. And um, freedom to work, of course, means uh, I don't have to join a union. Uh, right. The freedom to own and control one's property. In other words, you can't tell me I have to serve black people. Um, and the freedom to participate in a free market. Uh, which, of course, again, means, you know, child labor laws, uh, you know, minimum wage, yeah, whatever right. you want to talk about right. are all wrong. The idea, I mean, the reason why I'm hitting on this so so importantly is to uh, to communicate just how important it is perceived by political leaders to undo even those things that were aspirational and um, are are rhetorical in many respects. Yeah, right. Because no, that's where it launches absolutely. from. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. And by the way, I mean, Reagan was an artist at doing just that kind of thing. My, my previous book to the Four Freedoms book was about Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. And actually open with Reagan's speech in 1980 to the Republican National Convention accepting their no, the nomination. And what's fascinating there is he, he quotes three great Americans, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Paine, and Franklin Roosevelt. And he shocked the Republican delegates because the, the one Republican they, they didn't want to know anymore was Abraham Lincoln. The one, the one radical from the Revolution they would have nothing to do with for 200 years, they hated his guts, was Thomas Paine, and you know how much they despised Roosevelt. So what Reagan does is he literally grabs hold of these three figures because he knows he's got the nomination. He wants to talk to the American people now, and he knows that every American loves Lincoln, has a firm, a firm affection for Thomas Paine, and will never give up their affection for Franklin Roosevelt. And he's beginning to figure out a way to turn them inside, upside down and inside out. The right to a good education. Long ago, our nation realized that we could not survive as a viable democracy without an educated population. But technology, the marketplace, and the global network of the economy has changed in such a way that a college education is as necessary to a successful career today as a high school education was a generation ago. What nations from Europe to South America have realized that if they want to be an economically successful country in the future, that they have to make university education tuition-free, and they're doing it right now. Germany realized this. Go ahead. Enjoy yourselves. Germany realized this. So did Denmark, Finland, Venezuela. People... Slovenia doesn't charge tuition at their universities. But in the United States, we're doing the exact opposite. We're doing what our closest rivals and worst enemies would want us to do. If the Soviet Union could ask us to do anything to guarantee that their star will rise and ours will fall, if China wants us to do anything, is to make tuition higher and make it more difficult for a larger group of people in the United States to receive a higher education. Because 
That will make sure that if we don't correct this, we will become the nation that is exporting labor to go shine the shoes of the French and pick coffee beans in Venezuela. That wall between the United States and Mexico may become Mexico's best defense against American illegal agricultural workers pouring over their border, which is the only circumstance under which Mexico will pay for the wall. That was clever. That was more of a laugh line than an applause line. I'll, help me edit this, will you? Our apparently crazy socialist political friend, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, also said that we should also have the right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. For all of Sarah Palin's warnings about death panels and Ben Carson's insistence that Obamacare is worse than slavery, our American, yeah, he said it, our American healthcare delivery system that discriminates between the rich and the poor, between the insured and the uninsured, to a degree that Franklin Roosevelt, even confined to his wheelchair when he wrote this, he could have never imagined how screwed up our healthcare delivery system could become. I'm 62 years old, and I have never taken a sick day in my entire adult life, and yet my health care premium is more than my house payment, so that once a year, a very pretty young doctor with a diamond stud in her nostril can look at me and say, you know, you really ought to lose weight. <laughs> I'm paying $14,000 a year for that advice. Millions of Americans die prematurely because they either have no insurance or they cannot begin to afford the high deductibles on the insurance they do have. Our system of rationing health care only to the wealthy and the well-insured actually costs more than giving adequate health care to everyone. And in light of that simple fact, Americans cannot escape being labeled as being moral monsters in the modern world. We could give health care to everyone and save money by doing it. We just don't want to. And the choice not to do so sends hundreds of thousands to their graves prematurely. And our politicians, with rare exception, never mention this fact. And you know what hurts me even more? Pulpits? are silent on this fact. I don't have repeatable words strong enough to describe the, the contempt that I have for pastors that never talk about this topic. We've been trying to correct this situation for over a century. Every other industrialized nation in the world has done it. Countries whose church attendance is not a tenth of what it is in America. So when you hear me say that mainstream religion is more of a problem than it is a solution, I want you to understand I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths every year because our, church has not, our, our churches have not led our country in a a revolution of conscience that would make us move to universal health care. Finally, Roosevelt's second Bill of Rights asserts that we all have the right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment. Now, 
This is the one of Roosevelt's eight declared rights that he actually meaningfully addressed with the Social Security and Medicare systems. It's far from perfect, but it has been adulterated in a way to ensure that it will eventually collapse actuarially. Even still, such mathematical geniuses as George W. Bush and Marco Rubio have wanted to privatize it so that the hard-earned retirement money paid into by working people everywhere can then be stolen uh, in fees for hedge fund man- managers. The very elite have an inexplicable and indefensible belief that they somehow are the rightful owners of the assets of the poor and the middle class. And the only thing that will keep them from taking those assets is if churches and labor unions and low-wage workers and voters will wake up and have a conscience, will wake up and defend themselves from being exploited by the powerful. Thank you. As you may have noticed, I I have a real fondness for finding historical examples of people who promoted progressive uh, ideas from long ago. Using Roosevelt's proposed Second Bill of Rights was actually a suggestion from one of our YouTube listeners. But I wrote this sermon sitting at the uh, Gethsemane Monastery in the refectory, and Brother Luke sent his his greetings to you. I noticed sitting right next to my coffee cup there in the refectory was a quote from the 4th century Turkish saint, St. John Chrysostom, who said, Not to enable the poor to share in our goods is to steal from them and deprive them of life. Whether it was Roosevelt in the last century, St. Chrysostom in the 4th century, Jesus in the 1st century, or Buddha in the 4th century BCE, There has always been a clear and simple path towards a sincere spirituality and a healthy civilization, and that is to make sure that none of our brothers and sisters fall through the cracks of an economic system that always seems poised to steal their humanity from them, if not their very lives. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You know that we have not become that more perfect union that still lies within our grasp. And it is your life assignment to bring it into existence. We've just heard clips today, starting with Harvey Kay giving a speech at the National Archives presented by Book TV. Tom Hartman challenged Ted Cruz's idea of freedom by comparing them to FDR. Then we heard the first of three parts of Dr. Roger Ray's sermon on FDR's Economic Bill of Rights. Bill Moyers spoke with Harvey Kay in a wide-ranging interview about the Four Freedoms. The Majority Report explained why the libertarian concept of freedom doesn't incorporate the existence of economic coercion, though it obviously should. I threw in a mashup of FDR and Bernie Sanders that was put together by Bernie Mentum on YouTube back during the last primary election. And then just before the last clip of Roger Ray, the Majority Report also interviewed Harvey Kay, and in that clip they focused on the well-strategized conservative 
conservative campaign to roll back FDR's New Deal. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips, one that tells the story of the propaganda campaign, and I don't necessarily mean that as a pejorative in this case, that was run to promote the idea of the Four Freedoms back in FDR's day, including a series of four Norman Rockwell paintings that were created to represent them, and also a clip of a former libertarian explaining some of the psychology and cognitive dissidence it takes to believe in libertarian philosophy. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote, on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Jason in Chicago. I'm leaving this voicemail because you're probably one of the few progressive spaces that would like tolerate this kind of sacrilegious talk. But basically, Sanders supporters just sort of they act as though it's a coincidence that they have this frothing at the mouth, the hatred of female politicians. And it, in, in my view, it's absolutely not. He is, like Sanders has a lot of good qualities, but the concern is how his adherents lack any curiosity or interest in his bad qualities, one of them being he's bad on women's issues. And not only do they not care, but he's become sort of like lightning rod for progressives who just don't want to deal with their sexism at all. And that's that's something that's, you know, I would just go back to like the hippie communes of the past that excluded blacks and mistreated women while talking about free love. Like there's a long, rich history of people claiming to be progressive who don't want to address their actual biases. Uh, Chapo Trap House, which I could leave a whole voicemail about them, but they reposted this pro-con list of uh, various politicians and Bernie's was, well, he's old. Yeah, that's it. Like his only con is basically that he's old. But of course, endless vitriol for Hillary Clinton. This faction of progressivism, like Hillary Clinton, is the worst thing that ever happened in America. And that's not to say that like Kamala Harris and Clinton don't have problems. But to these people, they're indistinguishable from Hitler. They they shriek out other voices. They shriek at women. They have this like chauvinism and Bernie or bust attitude. And we don't know the damage that it causes, but it's certainly irritating. So that's my, uh, yeah, that's my Sanders rant. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So I definitely have some thoughts on the voicemail we just heard from Jason. And I think I can put this debate to rest. For years now, we've been debating whether Bernie Sanders supporters are sexist or if they merely have policy disagreements and they are excited about about their candidate, support him vigorously, and therefore denounce his opponents uh, equally vigorously. That's uh, more or less 
the debate. And um, I think that I can not only put this debate to rest, but answer it with a high precision of accuracy, a margin of error less than 1%. So to work this out, first of all, let's ask the question, do Bernie Sanders supporters have genuine policy differences with other politicians? I think the obvious answer is yes. The follow-up then is, does this then mean that their views are not also tainted by sexism? The answer to that, I think, obviously is not necessarily. So here is my estimation. How many Bernie Sanders supporters are sexist? If I were to estimate, I would say approximately 100%. And I say that with great confidence. And here's the reason. Because everyone is sexist to some degree. Literally everyone. I mean, there might be a couple of people out there, but it's because they like grew up in a bubble or lived in a cave somewhere and they don't know like the difference in genders and they don't know anything. Like those are the people who aren't sexist in our society. We are all taught in a million different tiny little ways to be sexist against women. There's a, there's a, a smaller percentage of reasons to be sexist against men. It's, it's not a 100%, 0% uh, kind of situation, but the majority of the negative feelings are directed towards women, and this goes for both men and women, both conservative men and progressive men, conservative women and progressive women. They have all been inculcated with some degree of sexist thought. And uh, just just to sort of demonstrate this, uh, and since we're talking about Bernie, and, and let's go ahead and rehash the, the primary uh, from a couple of years ago uh, while we're at it, let's bring up this case that uh, many of you will remember when uh, Gloria Steinem was, I think she was on Bill Maher, and uh, so this is what she said. The last line is is the key point that everyone focused on. So Gloria Steinem says, women are more for Clinton than men are. First of all, women get more radical as we get older because we experience, not to overgeneralize, but men tend to get more conservative because they gain power as they age. Women get more radical because they lose power as they age. And when you're young, you're thinking, where are the boys? The boys are with Bernie. And so that uh, got a lot of attention. She, she was accused of claiming that women who support Bernie Sanders only do so because well, all the, the cute boys are supporting Bernie Sanders. So, you know, since I don't have a brain of my own, I'm going to go support him too. And then maybe I can find myself a husband, which is like uh, sort of a, a ridiculous uh, uh, caricature of, of what she said or meant. But then unsurprisingly, like a day or two later, she took time to think about that and correct what she said. So she wrote on her Facebook page, in a case of talk show interruptus, I misspoke on the Bill Maher show recently and apologize for what's been misinterpreted as implying young women aren't serious in their politics. What I had just said on the same show was the opposite. Young women are active, mad as hell about what's happening to them, graduating in debt but averaging a million dollars less over their lifetimes to pay it back. Whether they gravitate to Bernie or Hillary, young women are activist and feminist in greater numbers than ever before, end quote. And 
So here's how I interpret this, you know, especially with with the pressure cooker of that campaign now, you know, years behind us, we can see it with maybe a little more clarity. So at the time, she was accused, quite rightly, of having said something sexist, because it obviously was. There's just no question about it. And then when she defended herself, she had more of a, a thoughtful perspective that, that gave her, like, intellectual uh, opinion on what's happening with young women in the country. And and so the way I see it is that the first statement exposes what has been deeply burned into her from a young age, the, these sexist ideas, and the other is an expression of what she intellectually knows to be true. And, and I don't fault her for having these two ideas going on at the same time, because it's a demonstration of how deeply ingrained sexism is in society, that even this person who is seen as like the pinnacle of feminism in America has these deeply ingrained sexist ideas that when unguarded can slip out. And then she thought about it for a minute. It was like, oh, okay, obviously that wasn't right. And I didn't mean it that way. But to, to even have the idea that young women are just going where the boys are, like that's something that, would never and almost could never be thought of in the gender reverse scenario. You would almost never imagine thinking or much less saying that any boys, a group of them, an individual, anyone, that their political views were, were being shaped by whatever the girls were doing and that I'll go support whatever the girls are doing because I want to seem cool with the girls, etc. Like you almost can't imagine that. And so, and that's how you can tell so clearly that it's a sexist comment. But as I said, I don't blame her for it. It's just, it's exposing the, this inner truth of how she, like literally everyone has been tainted by sexism. So if Gloria Steinem, of all people, can be shown to have at least some deeply ingrained sexist ideas floating around in her head, even if she rejects them intellectually, as she obviously would, then who are any of the rest of us to claim that our perspectives, our actions, our reactions, the statements we make, are not tainted by sexism? How, how could anyone actually think that if they understand the, the structures of society? Like, only someone as ignorant as a fish that doesn't know what water is could think that they have somehow lived in this world and avoided being influenced by a structure of our society as major as sexism. So the Bernie Sanders supporters who are vitriolic against female politicians, are their opinions influenced by sexism? Of course they are. Does that mean that it's based entirely on sexism and that they don't have genuine uh, policy differences and different ideas of how the country should be run? Obviously not. But if, if you're a Bernie supporter and you find yourself accused of sexism, uh, here's my advice. Own up to it. Say, you know what? Like, let me think about that. That's probably true because everyone has been influenced by sexism. I'm, I'm going to really try to not have that be the case. I'm, I'm really going to try to frame my ideas and express my opinion and support my candidate in a way that is true to my ideals and ideas about what policies I support, 
but that are not tainted by sexism and, and that there's not undue vitriol uh, directed at women because of their gender. That's my advice. If you have thoughts on this or anything else, as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.